electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. All right, good evening. We begin last call tonight with breaking news. President Biden is set to hold a press conference following his critical summit with China's President Xi Jinping. He will deliver remarks from that podium on your screen. It was the first time the two leaders had met face to face in a year. And it comes at a time of still high tensions between the two nations. An out of control fentanyl epidemic. Much of the chemical drug is made or partly made in China as well as critical money-focused conversations around tariffs and human rights in China's labor conditions. We've got a host of smart voices for you to analyze it all tonight. We're soon going to speak with Kyle Bass and Republican Governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, along with many others as well and many other topics. But we begin tonight with CNBC's Eamon Jabbers, who is live in San Francisco. Eamon, there is much to discuss. What are some of the most important headlines and topics Coming out of President Biden and Xi Jinping's meeting. Brian, this summit is as much about the pictures as it is about headlines. And it was a flawlessly produced scene here in San Francisco as President Biden warmly greeted Xi Jinping at a lavish estate in Woodside, California, with a handshake designed to show the world that the two nations are not spiraling into hostility. Inside the meeting room today, warm words of welcome as both leaders reached for de-escalatory language for the televised portion of the summit. Both men cited their long personal relationship, which dates back to before or either one was president of his respective country. I think it's paramount that you and I understand each other clearly, leader to leader, with no misconceptions or miscommunication. We have to ensure that competition does not veer into conflict. And we also have to manage it responsibly. Xi Jinping nodded toward the tempestuous history of the strategic relationship between the two countries. I'm still of the view that major country competition is not the prevailing trend of current times and cannot solve the problems facing China and the United States or the world at large. Planet Earth is big enough for the two countries to succeed. Now, after a lunch of ravioli and heritage chicken at the Filoli House and Garden Estate south of San Francisco, we briefly saw the two leaders as they took a walk together on the grounds of the estate. And we're just now getting word of some of the agreements that come out of the meeting. The two leaders struck agreements on fentanyl, uh, Chinese military forces operating dangerously close to American forces. Senior administration officials are briefing reporters right now, Brian, so we're getting more detail in real time here. Uh, We'll get some information on all of those agreements and get back to you as soon as we have more details, Brian. All right. So just just as kind of a scene setter, you're obviously in San Francisco. You're on our bureau. APEC, the actual summit, the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit is in the city of San Francisco. But you noted Woodside. Woodside, for those in the know, is not near San Francisco. It's about an hour south, much closer to Palo Alto or Stanford. Do we know why that location was chosen? I'm guessing privacy. 
Well, privacy is one, Brian, and they haven't given us a real reason for it, but you can imagine security is certainly one. Privacy is another. Uh, this is an estate that is not going to be subject to a lot of demonstrations because it's hundreds of acres that they can lock down. Uh, so the Chinese leader won't see anti-China demonstrations. Joe Biden won't see any demonstrations uh, regarding Israel and Gaza, uh, those sorts of things that both leaders might regard as a distraction, frankly, uh, for this meeting. So they have this place to themselves. And it's a historic estate. It was uh, built in 1917 by the owner of a gold mine uh, coming out of the, the San Francisco gold rush in that era. Uh, and it has been the site of a, a number of dramatic events, including the filming of some episodes of Dynasty. So there has been some drama here at this estate. And now we'll see today if there's some history here as well, Brian. Yeah, I, I think the gold mine and the dynasty sort of all kind of go together with with setting the scene there, given that uh, President Xi of China, some people say he is likely to be president for life. We shall see. Now, we are waiting on the president. 7.15 was the guidance in about 10 minutes from now. If that's the case, Eamon, do we expect President Biden to do something he has not done for some time, and that is to take questions on live national television from the media? We, we do expect that the president will hold a press conference here. When exactly that press conference will take place is anybody's guess. They've been giving us some guidance throughout the day that the times were slipping, that they're running a little long in some of these sessions. You can see on the screen now they still have the tarp over the, the lectern there uh, to protect it from the rain. So it's clear they're not ready to get started anytime soon. But we do expect to see the president answering questions, giving us an official readout of what was agreed to in this meeting. So this will be a new newsmaking moment when we do see it, because we will get the first public indication of uh, exactly what was agreed to here, other than uh, these senior administration officials uh, speaking uh, now to reporters behind the scenes. So this is a moment for the president to come out and tell the American people and tell the world uh, whether this session was a success today or not. Yeah, and I'm trying to think back, and of course you live and work in D.C., you probably know, Eamon, other than I think one question on Air Force One, when the last time we had the media had the opportunity to ask the president questions on live national TV. It should be very interesting. Hopefully that will uh, happen. But so I'm trying to understand that the summit is now officially over. They started earlier today with lunch. So is it fair to say the actual meeting part of the summit between Biden and she was probably three hours long, not including lunch? Yeah. Yeah, it was a couple of hours long. We, we don't know exactly how these sessions broke out. We were told that there are three different sessions behind closed doors. We don't know exactly the length of each of them. We did see the two leaders come out and do that on-camera walkabout. So uh, that's an indication that things were going well at that point. Uh, you know, it hadn't spiraled out of control behind the scenes, that sort of thing. And mm -hmm. a lot of these agreements are preset, right? So a lot of this will have been uh, set privately between the two sides before the summit. Uh, and they're just here to finalize details and put some signatures signatures on the agreements uh, before they come out and announce them. Uh, but clearly, there was an importance to this yeah. uh, in terms of the military to military communications and de-escalating the potential conflict. It sounds like uh, what they've gotten behind closed doors is an agreement for uh, the Chinese military and the U.S. military to be talking directly to each other at an officer to officer level. We'll get more detail around that. Uh, but that's regarded as something important here because it will uh, prevent 
in theory, uh, you know, an accidental military confrontation. As you see, Chinese and American airplanes operating in very close proximity to each other, Chinese and American ships yeah. operating in very close proximity to each other. That's a danger that they're trying to make sure uh, goes away or recedes a little bit here with this agreement today. And let's hope that, uh, that that was done because that would be a comfort, I think, to the entire world. Eamon Jabbers in San Francisco. Eamon, Thank you very much. All right. Now, you let's bet, bring man. in somebody who knows a thing or two about China, particularly on the military side. That is noted China hawk Kyle Bass, obviously the founder of Heyman Capital Management, but has been working in and around China-based issues for the better part of a decade. And I can say this, uh, Kyle, with conviction, very few people have as many high-level connections at some of the highest levels of government and the military as you. Thank you for joining us. I see you've got your hat on there going, going full Texas. Um, to Eamon's point, if we get to a situation where the two militaries are speaking directly to each other, would you view that as a net positive? Yeah, I mean, we have been pushing for that uh, all along. Uh, you know, we have the Chinese spy balloon, we have COVID, we have the fentanyl deaths, we have all of the disagreements we've had as China has been seeking to undermine U.S. interests around the world. Uh, we have been we have been telling them that a responsible global actor would actually have a line between militaries, especially militaries that have been uh, uh, building uh, against one another uh, now for many years. And, and the Chinese uh, the Chinese build of their their maritime uh, military has been almost unprecedented. Uh, Thirty five ships to three hundred and fifty ships in less than 10 years. So China's military buildup and their reckless maneuvers around uh, U.S. interests uh, has been something that has been, uh, let's say, keeping the world on edge. But you have to remember, Brian, in in October 15, uh, or sorry, September 2015, um, you know, Xi Jinping came to the White House. He looked President Obama in the eyes, shook his hand and said he will never militarize the South China Sea. And I, I, I urge you to Google Subi Reef, Mischief Reef. Look at all these Look at all these Chinese bases that are now fully militarized in the South China Sea. Mm -hmm. They tell us things and then they con and then he continues uh, to undermine all of our interests around the world. We can't take him for his word, Brian. It's really important to focus but, on what they do and not what they say. But, but at the same point, the fact that at least there was an in-person face-to-face meeting, and I don't just mean with Biden and Xi, I mean to Eamon's point, a lot of the work that is being done Behind the scenes, obviously, Anthony Blinken, the secretary of state, many others. And let's not also forget that for some reason, California Governor Gavin Newsom was in Beijing and met with Xi Jinping about two weeks ago. And one wonders if that visit was kind of laying the groundwork and doing some of the work behind the scenes. But at least we are talking. And I think we have to view that, Kyle. Tell me if I'm wrong as a net positive. Look, I think talking is certainly a net, net positive. I think that, you know, the, the director of national intelligence uh, of all 16 U.S. intelligence agencies uh, lists China as the number one threat uh, to uh, U.S. national security. Uh, we should have an open and clear dialogue with them. But, uh, Brian, it's important that we lead with strength, that we that we actually have resolve in our own actions. Appeasing dictators has never worked. And appeasing Xi Jinping will not work. But having lines of communication are absolutely necessary between what we deem to be responsible global actors. What Gavin Newsom has to do with any of this is beyond anyone's 
uh, ability to think about this situation. There are more Chinese flags that fly in San Francisco on a daily basis than U.S. flags. We have to be very careful about, I guess, what what image we're trying to project to China uh, and, and what communications we're having with them. And we need to hold them to some of these agreements like the fentanyl agreement. Yeah. That's measurable, right? Think about this. Fentanyl kills 100,000 Americans each year and 95% of the fentanyl precursor chemicals come from China. Mass shootings in the U.S., while horrible, are less than 700 people a year. So I understand mass shootings are a yeah. big issue here in America, but we, we seem to just gloss over a, an issue that is exactly more than a hundred times larger with China's uh, mailing of precursor chemicals yeah. into the U.S. <clears throat> and killing Americans. And, so and we're gonna, we have to be very careful about this. Yeah, Kyle, we're going to be speaking more about the fentanyl side with New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, who's done a lot of work on this in a second, so I'm going to pivot a little bit. Another part of this summit, uh, and I found this to be... I guess understandable in a way, but still hard to believe for $40,000, U.S. companies can effectively buy seats at a dinner table with President Xi. Now, I have no idea where that money is going. I assume it's going to the organizers of the event. But how do you feel about companies being able to basically purchase direct access to President Xi of China? Yeah, I mean, Brian, it's still it's still beyond me that we've got what the U.S. State Department and the last two State Departments declare as a genocidal dictator uh, who has a limitless partnership with the world's number one war criminal, Vladimir Putin. And here we are greeting him with open arms and deference. And so the fact that U.S. businesses continue to fall all over themselves to re-engage or to worry about the billions of dollars they have invested in China, given China's economic collapse and given their militaristic belligerence and given their undermining of, of the U.S. order. It, it's beyond me that someone would write that check. And uh, I think that list of participants, uh, let's hope, let's be hopeful that that list of participants is released. We still have the tariffs on so many imported China goods. A lot of people forget that President Biden coming in and, and not touching the tariffs that were put on by the former president, Trump, I imagine she is frustrated with that and is trying to, to get those reduced or removed or working to identify the place of origin of solar panels, many of them reportedly coming from forced labor camps from the Uyghur Muslims in the far western part of the nation. I am hoping and hopeful that we get some clear headlines and direction on the business side of things, because if we don't, if we don't solve that, I don't know how we're going to solve the, the social stuff, the fentanyl, the things that you just referenced. Yeah, but when you when you look at the tariffs and, and specifically you look at the aluminum and steel tariffs, Brian, you know, when you have a state actor that has malign intentions like China does um, in the aluminum business, our aluminum smelters were running 85, 88 percent capacity. And China decided to give away free power to their state driven aluminum producers and they were dumping aluminum on, our, aluminum on our market, which was taking our capacity utilization down to a level where all of our aluminum producers were going to go bankrupt. So they were they were an intentional state, non-economic actor, 
trying to take an entire business out of business so that we rely on China for our strategic aluminum, which actually goes into a number of our military applications. So no wonder we haven't reversed the tariffs and we won't reverse the tariffs. They are a non-economic state actor, and we have to have an economic defensive uh, strategy put together as a country. Thank God we've been able to keep between two administrations things that would keep our industries alive and, and combating malign state actors like China. Yeah. And the, the war side, obviously, first and foremost, human rights. You've got the business angles. They, they met for a couple of hours. Let's hope a lot was taken care of in those in those three or four hours. Either way, Kyle Bass, we appreciate you joining us. Appreciate your views as well. You have a good night. You too. Glad to be All here, right. Brian. Take care. Thank you. All right. Much more to come here on our special hour of last call. And again, we are waiting on President Biden. We were expecting we were told sort of the guidance 715 Eastern right now where the president may do something he has not done in a while, which would be to take live questions from the media. Again, looks like they're a little bit delayed, but we are waiting on that. When it happens, we will bring it to you. We'll talk also more about what we just talked about a little bit with Kyle Bass, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, to talk about the deadly drug fentanyl coming from a lot of the chemicals that are coming from Chinese labs and some of the numbers that may shock you around that true epidemic. That is next on this special edition of Last Call. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call. Text or chat 988 for free confidential support anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. All right, welcome back. Just a reminder, we are awaiting President Biden's press conference. And when it happens, we will take you there live. Now, of course, a major issue both Joe Biden and Xi Jinping tackled today was the fentanyl crisis. According to a senior White House official, they reached a new deal to crack down on the manufacture and export of the deadly synthetic opioid. China would target the chemical companies manufacturing many of the components of the drug. According to a recent congressional research report, labs in Mexico, which make the drug, are getting much of their chemical supply from China. Now, the fight to slow or stop China from helping make fentanyl has been going on for years. Chinese authorities have actually joined forecasts with American or forces rather with American law enforcement to try to crack down on the drug trade. But the New York Times reported recently that that effort has stalled and the flow of fentanyl into America is massive. It is also deadly. Now, you may have heard how deadly fentanyl can be, but may not know just how deadly it really is. Over the past year, nearly 80,000 Americans are thought estimated to have died from fentanyl or fentanyl-related overdoses. Fentanyl deaths have tripled in just seven years. Most of those overdoses are among younger people. 
which leads you to this terrifying and hard to believe, but true fact. In just one year, more Americans will die of fentanyl than every death under the age of 50 over the course of the entire COVID-19 pandemic in one year. At current trends, not impossible to say we could lose one million younger Americans in just over a decade. Let's now bring in New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, who knows this topic very well. Parts of New England, along with West Virginia, are among some of the states hit hardest by the fentanyl crisis. Governor Sununu, thanks for joining us. I, I, I tried to put the issue, uh, I know people who have lost children and friends, some of them accidentally, by the way, things were laced and they were unaware. To our audience, I was recently in San Francisco and seeing some of the real impacts of this drug, which I call a chemical weapon. I don't know if it's a drug or not because these people did not look like they were having any kind of a good time. Um, it is a magnitude crisis that we don't seem to be taking seriously enough. Um, look, this is the biggest drug crisis uh, America has ever faced, and you need a whole different way to go about it. We, we, that, that graph you showed is, is very telling, the fact that you've tripled the number of fentanyl deaths in this country in the past seven years. In New Hampshire, we, we kind of blew up our old system, and we went about it in a very, very different way. So we had those same skyrocketing-type numbers uh, seven, eight years ago, have a whole new system, and we've ac actually been able to bring our numbers down over the past couple of years, which is a success. But this is a challenge that doesn't just begin and end in China. I appreciate that the president went over and had a discussion, but let's understand we can't trust China and understand that the vast majority, as you noted, comes through Mexico, 85% then comes over the southern border, another issue that Biden hasn't dealt with. So if you really want to stop this issue, um, you're going to work across the southern border, you're going to secure it, you're going to work with our allies and, and, and the folks we can work with in Mexico, understanding that the cartels can bring this, th these chemicals in from anywhere. It doesn't just, it's not just China. So to go over and, and have a, a conversation once every three months or whatever it is and, and talk about fentanyl, yeah. as the president has done, is very different than as a governor who's working on it every single day. And I speak for all the governors. We're, we're on this issue every single day. But you have to go about addressing it uh, and completely different than anything we've ever seen before. Rural access to care, better workforce, uh, completely different uh, uh, types of, of recovery programs that, you know, bring in the, the employer, that bring in the families, that have the wraparound housing. It's, it's very complex. It isn't just throw more money at it. If you do that, you're just going to be pushing harder in the wrong direction. you got to have kind of innovative ideas yeah. to really go at this. 73,000 people under the age of 50 died during the COVID pandemic. We have estimated 77,000, many of which are obviously going to be younger, dying of this fentanyl uh, epidemic as well in just one year. I mean, the numbers are truly stunning. And so if, if our viewers could understand the supply chain a little bit better, basically many it's a synthetic opioid that is, according to the, the government, right. 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine, that many of these chemicals to make it are made in Chinese labs, they are shipped to Mexico, the finished product is then created, and then of course it is, it is taken across the southern border into the United States. That's effectively the fentanyl supply chain, for lack of a better term. That's right. Look, a, a, a handful of fentanyl uh, will, will kill about half of my state. I mean, that's just the reality of it. Uh, a lot of this stuff is mixed. It's brought over the border. It's mixed in cutting rooms that are very non-scientific, right? They cut it in, they mix it. You get, you get, they're effectively over, overdosing a lot of their own clients. But because it's so addictive and so powerful and you can mix it so readily with these other drugs, 
just saying, hey, we're going after fentanyl, by the way, that's what, that was six years ago. We have xylazine being mixed in with fentanyl, a whole new uh, epidemic of xylazine coming yep. in. You have fentanyl Called being trank. mixed into vape. Into, in, that's right, vape and, and marijuana. It's being mixed in there. So there are individuals that have no idea they're doing fentanyl. We have found fentanyl in Adderall. Pills to children that are on the black market have been known to have fentanyl and yes. um, Xanax. People are taking Xanax just as a, a medication to, to manage their anxiety. They don't realize it's laced with fentanyl because they want to make you an addict. It's coming in all these different ways. So, again, I appreciate the conversations being had. But where's the accountability there, by the way? How do we know and that's, that what you know, China and, and, is going to put down on paper is what they're going to follow through on? And, and Governor, what, what you're saying is so important because when I post stuff about fentanyl, and by the way, I lost a 17-year-old uh, friend of a friend, a uh, great kid. He was not a drug addict. Uh, he, I think he probably smoked a joint. It was laced and he died. And so you're making this incredibly important point, which is that there's a, probably a large part of our audience which is listening in and watching and saying, well, it's everybody's choice if they want to do drugs. Your point is well taken, which is that a lot of the fentanyl crisis, maybe not all, but but much of it is people who are becoming almost accidentally addicted. Maybe they're doing other softer drugs. They are being laced. There was a baby in San Francisco. You know, there's residue around. There's there's animals and pets and babies that are getting the residue around them. This is not just somebody saying I'm going to go smoke a joint in the corner. This stuff, to your point, can be put on anything. And I was shocked to learn this. I was shocked to learn this. The Customs and Border Patrol, I think, in, in, uh, captured something like a 56 pounds or 56 pounds of fentanyl, which I thought, OK, it doesn't sound like a lot. It's like a you know, big suitcase full until I read that 56 pounds could kill 30 million Americans. And that's what they caught. That's right. That's right. And, and they catch, I mean, again, they, our Custom Border Patrol do everything they can, but they still only catch a small fraction of what actually comes over the border. Remember, the fentanyl crisis really started with massive overprescribing, right? There was a lot of overprescribing by doctors, uh, intentional or not, and a lot of it was intentional, unfortunately, and that basically drew addicts in in a lot of the suburban areas, a lot of the rural uh, areas. That's why we in New Hampshire, and I think every state has to look at rural access to care. You have a lot of individuals that can be functional addicts of fentanyl for years. They eventually overdose. Why? Because they're not going to drive 200 miles to the inner city to get to get treatment or a 28 day recovery program. 28 day recovery is not for everybody and it really doesn't necessarily work with fentanyl. You need all these different types and more modern means of recovery programs. You have to go about it in a very aggressive yeah. way. You have people losing their jobs. They're afraid to go go to, into to get treatment because they're afraid they're going to lose their jobs and lose their family. We created recovery friendly workplaces. Right. In a state with the lowest unemployment rate in the country, we teach our employers how to keep somebody if they're going through recovery, how to get them the help they need, get them back on track, give them that self-worth. All of these things are part of the success. That's, that program is actually going national, which we're very proud of. But at home, understand this is this can be anywhere. And if there's any any parent that tells you it's not in their school, they're wrong. If there's yeah. any employer that tells you it's not in their business, they're wrong. They're just not looking or they don't want to see the realities. It is absolutely everywhere. And so it's a really a community issue. It is. That has it is. to be uh, taken Governor, seriously. Yes. Uh, hey, I'm sorry to cut you off. Uh, I got uh, three different people yelling at me in my ear. So I apologize, Governor uh, Chris Sununu, an important topic. Thank you. Let's hope something Thank you, sir. It's done on this uh, truly a deadly issue. All right. Just a reminder, we are still awaiting President Biden's press conference. We are hoping to see him soon. You can see there is some activity around that lectern on the left, but still ahead. Meta making a big move in the battle over free speech versus misinformation. But could that blow up in Meta's face? Look, we're back right after this.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. Just a reminder, we are awaiting President Biden's live press conference from Woodside, California, about 45 minutes south of San Francisco. We are hoping to see the president soon. But that is not all that is going on today. In fact, we have some non-China-related developments on Capitol Hill. The Senate is expected to vote on the funding resolution that the House passed yesterday. It would keep the government open until the winter. Emily Wilkins, live on the Hill with more. Emily, will they vote on this bill tonight? You know, Brian, I feel like the theme of tonight is waiting. We're waiting for Biden. We're waiting to send it to figure out if they're going to vote. Look, this is the stopgap bill that will prevent a shutdown. And at this point, the Senate is poised to make sure that that shutdown is ended. This is the bill. It already passed the House. The Senate, it has bipartisan support. And after it clears the Senate, it will go to the president's desk. And that's likely to be well before that Friday at midnight deadline. Of course, it's the Senate, though. Any one member can hold things up. And lawmakers have some concerns. We've seen Rand Paul, Republican of Kentucky, come out wanting to see an amendment uh, dealing with the lack of spending. He just wants a vote. It's probably not going to pass. But then we've also seen a couple senators come out and say, look, the Senate, uh, Congress really, has a huge to-do list before the holidays, and we want to start seeing some progress on some of those other items. These are things, namely a major defense authorization bill uh, that includes not only sort of how the military is going to be spending its funds, but other provisions, things like chips, things like AI, are included in this major package. There's also other bills Congress needs to get done before the end of the year, stuff on national security, stuff on the federal aviation. Uh, so a lot that Congress has left to do. And let's remember, even when they get all that done by the end of the year, the spending bill that they're voting on kicks the can down the road. Uh, part of the government will be funded until January 19th, the other half until February 2nd. And that's going to be an uphill climb for lawmakers to get those pieces of legislation done. At at this point, they don't even have an agreement on exactly how much their overall spending on these bills, let alone all the many, many, many details that they're going to have to decide on before the House and the Senate can actually agree to a package, which will be needed before the government is funded. So, Brian, it's going to looking to be a, a late night here at the Senate. And even though we are avoiding a shutdown, uh, Congress is certainly not off the hook for the things that they need to do in the next couple months. Emily Wilkins on Capitol Hill. Let's hope they get it done. Emily, thank you. All right, now to another hot topic, free speech and social media. According to the Wall Street Journal, Meta will allow political ads on Facebook and Instagram that question the legitimacy of the 2020 U.S. presidential election. Meta executives reportedly made this decision on the basis of free speech, but many, of course, are going to be outraged that that is being allowed to happen. Either way, it goes to the issue of social media and safety. Earlier today, GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley warned that social media is putting America at risk. Social media has become a national Terrible. security issue. Russia, Iran and China, North Korea, too, know that the cheapest form of warfare is to spread misinformation. 
For more, let's take it to our guests. With us tonight is The Verge, editor-in-chief and CNBC contributor Nilay Patel and Wall Street Journal social media business reporter Salvador Rodriguez. He wrote the article. Gentlemen, both, thank you. Salvador, first to you. Uh, listen, this is going to tick a lot of people off, that we're now going to relitigate the 2020 election via political ads of maybe unknown sources or, or dark money political pools here. What, what is Meta's Facebook, whatever, what is their basis for allowing this to happen? Yeah, so the sources that I spoke with told me that the thinking behind this new policy is that, one, they wanted to support freedom of speech. That's something that they uh, support for organic content. So they thought that it would be contradictory to take a different approach for paid content. And the other thing is that they wanted to write a policy that would stand the test of time for numerous future U.S. elections, as well as elections in other countries around the world. So that's why they went with the policy that they have adopted. Nalea, and, I'm, and I, you know, I, I know that these Meta and Twitter and others took a lot of heat from other sides saying that certain things were censored during the pandemic as well. But now we're sort of seeing it looks like a time where Meta is basically saying, hands off. You know what? Let you, you will take your money say what you want. Yeah, I think that we'll take their money is the problem, isn't it? You can allow anything on a platform. That's fine. I, I think one thing that they're looking at is it seems inevitable that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee for president. It seems inevitable that Donald Trump is going to run on a campaign uh, against American democracy, against the functioning system of elections in this country. He's going to say it a lot. I don't know. How, in a normal time, you should not need a policy that has to deal with the Republican candidate questioning the functioning of, of American democracy. It's not a normal time. So, okay, fine, you probably need a policy that allows the candidate to say that so people can evaluate it. What you do not need to do is accept money to amplify that message. And I think that's the line that these platforms have repeatedly faced. And in the case of Meta, it's the line that they've so you're repeatedly saying, so, just uh, gone ahead and crossed. So you're suggesting, because I want to be clear, I want to be clear, there have been people on the other side in other elections who said that, you know, I, I'm thinking about I'm thinking about Gore Bush, you know, 20 years ago, who said the same. If things flip in 24, you might have others say the same. I'm not. But but I want to be clear. Yeah. Your view is that if 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 some private citizen wants to say that Facebook should allow that. But Nile, if it's somebody paying them for a professional ad saying the 2020 election was stolen, that's what's not OK. Yeah, I think it's just a question of how do you want to make your money? Look, we're all in the market. We're all actors. We can make our money any way we want. If Donald Trump wants to post on his organic Facebook account, I think the election was stolen. Fine, right? Like, you can make that decision in the service of free speech. He's the candidate. You should probably allow that. Should you make your money amplifying the big lie? I don't think that's appropriate. I think a lot of people at Facebook think, okay, well, at this point, we have no choice because if we don't take that money, he wins. We're going to get hauled in front of Congress yeah. to defend this. We'll have to go through that again. And I think they're pre-caving to a bad outcome. I wonder, because Salvador, in your- Taking so money for amplifying a big lie, I think most people agree that that's not a great yeah. way to make money. Yeah, yeah. Sorry to cut you off there. We are, like I said, guys, we are waiting for the president. Hope to see him soon. So if I, if I have to jump in, I apologize in advance. Salvador, any of your sources suggest that this policy will also extend to other social media companies, the snaps, the TikToks of the world? 
Well, my sources were pretty focused on Meta, so it's it's unclear if uh, others will follow suit. But you know, typically when it comes to social media, Meta is the company that sets the tone, and it wouldn't be surprising if if other companies like a Snap, perhaps TikTok, or even uh, the company formerly known as Twitter, uh, now X, if they followed suit and allowed these type of ads. Do you believe, Nalay, you heard uh, the soundbite from Nikki Haley on Squawk Box this morning. Do you believe that social media, as it's currently constructed, is a national security threat? Uh, I think there's a lot of appetite for speech regulations in this country from both the left and the right. And I think social media is an effective target for politicians to run around uh, offering what are effectively speech regulations without having to run into questions about the First Amendment. I do think that the platforms need to be very careful about foreign interference in elections. I do think that we need to be very careful about who owns our algorithms and whether they're mm-hmm. transparent. But when I hear politicians talking about it in the ways they're talking about it, both on the left and the right, what they rarely fair, what they rarely discuss is the First Amendment and how that should prevent them from writing direct speech regulations. Nilay Patel, Salvador Rodriguez, a great discussion on a very important and I'm sure topic that will got, um, get a lot more attention over the next, say, 10 to 12 months. Thank you both, gentlemen. All right, still ahead. Did U.S.-China relations and tensions cool down a bit after today's summit between Presidents Biden and Xi? And if so, can it last? We'll get top insight next. All right, welcome back. President Biden set to give a press conference this evening following his summit with China's President Xi Jinping. But we are now learning more about the specifics about what have been agreed to by both sides during today's meeting. Eamon Javers, senior Washington correspondent, joining us again live from San Francisco. Eamon, what do we know? Brian, that's right. Senior administration officials are now confirming the details of some of the agreements that the two sides made today. We are learning that uh, the the two sides agreed to military, quote, policy level discussions. That's at the defense secretary level and that senior military commanders, both the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, but also the commander of the U.S. Pacific Forces in Hawaii will engage with the counterparts, theater commanders, uh, and be able to talk to military practices and specific deployments. So that's an important uh, level as well. And then at a lower level, There will be operational engagements between ship drivers and others uh, at that low engagement level. So at three different tiers, U.S. military will be talking to the Chinese military as a result. All of that is designed to head off an accidental military confrontation between the two sides. On fentanyl, as you were just discussing, the two sides say they have a plan involving the Chinese using a number of procedures to go directly after specific companies that make those precursors for fentanyl, the U.S. says that just over the last week or so, the Chinese have already acted against several of the companies that the U.S. has provided information about, almost two dozen, they say, they've provided information for, and the Chinese have taken action against. Now, on AI, there was some expectation here there might be an agreement. They say there were careful discussions about AI safeguards, but it does appear uh, no formal agreements or statement are going to be forthcoming uh, in the AI sphere, Brian. So a little bit more detail about where they were able to achieve some success 
success, those military-to-military conversations, uh, maybe not so much on the AI front. Uh, the U.S. senior administration official emphasizing that the United States very much has the lead in AI, and it's important to the U.S. side uh, to maintain that lead. And that may be one reason why the United States was not really eager to agree to any statement that might have been discussed at the table by the Chinese side, Brian. So a lot of moving parts here, but we are getting, are getting those new details. All right, Eamon Javers, thank you very much. Uh, and Eamon, yeah. we're going to come back to you on any further developments you may learn. Just raise your hand and we will pop back in. And again, folks, we are just waiting on the president. So uh, if it does happen, we will bring it to you live. But right now, let's bring in a panel, uh, all-star panel, DeWardrick McNeil, CNBC contributor, Apex CEO Summit delegate, and Longview Global Managing Director. He is out in San Francisco. And Jeff Sonnenfeld, Senior Associate Dean for Leadership Studies at Yale University. Gentlemen, both, as you just heard me say, if the president walks out, then I'm going to have to say goodbye and, and be a little bit rude. So I apologize in advance. DeWardrick, you were on, us on with us last night. We talked about the military stuff. You just heard what Eamon had to say. Your reaction. I think it's significant, Brian. Let me just say, I think that when you have uh, the two militaries talking specifically about the activities in the South China Sea, this is significant, particularly when we talk about their Navy, PLA Navy, our Navy, their Air Force, and our Air Force, talking about protocols for intercepts. Brian, you, you may recall that in 2001, a PLA Air Force uh, plane hit an EP-3 uh, uh, in the South China Sea. Some of our people were taken into custody. And this sort of thing is increasingly possible. So to have this sort of dialogue back on, I think, is extremely significant. I would have loved to have seen secretary defense level talks. Uh, that may happen, but certainly we cannot discount the importance of a military to military dialogue around activity in the South China Sea. You know, and, and Jeff, these little things which don't seem that important as the headline, just having that direct military dialogue, making sure there is not a, quote, accident in the air between the two nations. These are really, the, I think, the grease of the wheels that make a big difference. They don't seem like it at the time, but they could make a large difference later. I think that's exactly right, Brian. I think my fellow panelists nailed it by talking about the importance uh, of the accidental uh, catastrophes that can escalate uh, with inadvertence uh, in the military front. And as many of the viewers will recall, it's been two years you know, since the, uh, the Nancy Pelosi visit to Taiwan, which I don't object to, but the military has not been in contact in, at all in those two years. And that's quite alarming. As, as, uh, as you saw, Eamon went through that list of artificial intelligence and Hong Kong uh, and fentanyl uh, and putting that together with this military contact. These are four different areas. How do they tie together? Well, they actually make a really great point. Uh, and, and I applaud uh, Eamon for, for capturing this, is that we have this inextricably, inextricably intertwined mix of military issues, diplomatic issues, trade issues. And the only thing I'd add to that equation is your great strength, Brian, is the oil issue. And I know you and I could talk all night on this and we'll never get to the president if he interrupts us. But this, this is the piece that they didn't yet get to has to do with, uh, and but with this dialogue, hopefully they will be able to, is uh, Iran's biggest customer for their oil to, f to fund terrorism is yeah. China. Uh, and that's, uh, it's a more than a third of Iran's oil production. That could come from Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, uh, as you know so well, has a third of their production. Uh, they're not reaching their capacity for whatever reason. It's out there. It's a four uh, over four billion, four million barrels a day that they could provide. Well, it's, uh, I can tell you, Jeff, it's in part because Iran is now exporting more than two million barrels a day and producing 
over 3 million barrels a day. They were exporting basically five to 700,000 barrels, which is kind of a lar- one large ship per day. They are under sanctions, and for whatever reason, either it's not possible or they simply were not enforced. The sanctions were not enforced. To your point, they, they want to go after that, DeWardrick, but I would add this. In a, you know, there's obviously side meetings going on. Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, met with Xi two weeks ago. We're going to still find out about exactly why. There's only so much you can accomplish. What would you like to hear? If we get more headlines to aim in or out, what else would you like to hear was done at this summit today? Well, I think it's an important point to note that some of the strategic domain issues, so nuclear, uh, space, cyber, I would have loved to have seen more of that stuff being discussed, AI for sure. Uh, you know, if the president can come out and say that you know, we have l- at least put these issues on the table for some future uh, discussion, I think that's uh, a big win. But, you know, a- as we're taking baby steps, Brian, I, I just want mm-hmm. to uh, say that if we can sustain what happened here, it's a win. We had the same sort of enthusiasm after Bali a year ago, and then the balloon incident completely disrupted that. So I want to see them commit to a sustained engagement and not turn this off and on to try and score points. Then I'm happy. Yeah, Jeff, what would you like to see come out of this? Well, I'd like to see just drilling down on that oil, pun intended, is that uh, it's not the major SOEs, as you know, Brian, that are buying the Chinese. The, uh, state-owned enterprises. Yeah. Yeah, it's, not, it's not state-owned enterprises. It's not Sinochem, it's Sinopec. It's uh, smaller uh, uh, refineries because they're afraid of exactly what you said a moment ago about the enforcement of, of the existing sanctions that we're not enforcing. In the Trump era, we did enforce them, and that really strangled the economy of Iran. And uh, right now uh, is that uh, a lot of the major businesses in China are afraid about that. That could be discussed, how we could take a look at a partnership that has huge diplomatic anti-terrorism implications for cutting off Hamas, cutting off Hezbollah, uh, and cutting off the, the, the Houthis and, and, and others uh, that are being funded by Iranian oil. That's uh, that's a, a big thing we could make progress on. But on the other front, though, too, as we're seeing that Secretary Romano, Commerce Secretary Gina Romano, just said last week, of course, they're cutting back on the A800 and H800 uh, NVIDIA chips, which, of course, tie into what we're hearing apparently now coming out of the AI discussion. Uh, many of the chip companies, Micron uh, and, and others uh, have liked them, have their, their revenues from China have fallen 10 percent. What's amazing that people don't realize, a company like Apple, it's not even 20 percent of their revenues, about 18 percent of their revenues come from China. And they've been taking a lot of their production out of China, 25 percent last year, moving into Vietnam and elsewhere. So we're seeing a lot of de-risking happening on the technology yeah. front. But the pharma front, you, you know that's who's at dinner tonight. We still have 90 percent of our, our key antibiotic uh, components and others are yeah. coming from China. That's a, that's a problem. For $40,000, you can buy a seat literally at President Xi's table for eight people. Hard to believe, but true. We're going to, guys, sit tight. If we can ask you again, it's all kind of fluid, waiting, hopefully on the president soon. We're going to go back to our colleague, Eamon Javers in San Francisco. Eamon, do we have any idea uh, what the president may say? And will do we think he will take live questions from the media, which is something that we have not seen, I think, in, in months 
he will take questions from the media. I can see some of my uh, colleagues there uh, getting ready to, to throw those questions to him. That is the expectation. We'll see uh, if he lives up to it. But certainly, when you come out here, you're expected to give the readout and to take the questions. Uh, I can tell you a little bit more about what happened behind closed doors here, Brian, from a senior administration official. And I'm just reading from an email here that I just got uh, saying that the president uh, told Xi Jinping behind closed doors today that the playing field economically between the two countries was not level and that forced repatriation of intellectual property was inappropriate and saying that that kind of theft of U.S. IP is discouraging U.S investment into China. That's something that Xi Jinping has been very concerned about, is making sure that that U.S. investment continues to flow. The president here making the point that uh, if you're going to steal IP, that's going to cause a problem. Uh, forced repatriation of IP uh, is a problem as well. And also some color between the two men, making the difference, the distinction between the summit a year ago in Bali coming out of COVID, where everything was fairly distanced and formal, a senior administration official saying that it was interesting here uh, that this was a much more uh, intimate setting. There was more back and forth between the two leaders. They sat across from each other, only five or uh, six or seven feet away from each other. They could reach across the table. They could look uh, in the other person's face uh, directly. Uh, that kind of intimacy, the senior administration official yeah. here is suggesting, uh, gave this a more robust feeling. And of course, we saw the tweet from the president uh, relatively recently saying that this was some of the most substantial discussion that he's had with Xi Jinping. No substitute for in-person in, in any format, particularly when you're playing high-stakes games like this. Uh, we're going to bring in another market voice as well right now, the Victoria Green of G-Squared Asset Management. have been waiting very, very patiently. And, Victoria, appreciate you kind of sitting back. It's all been very fluid. And uh, glad you're here because ultimately we are CNBC and everything we just talked about as a fund manager, wealth manager, investor. What matters to you about this meeting? Uh, we're going to be definitely looking at export controls, what's happening in the tech sector, if they're going to roll back any chips. I don't think they're going to really roll anything back. I think if you look at the, the percentage of the U.S. tech exports that have been going to China, that's been falling for two years or so. And I think we're going to be very hesitant to unlock technology for China right now. But investors have some things to potentially walk away with that are happy. One, we might be getting more flights uh, to and from China and the United States. That's been a big hampering for a lot of people that want to travel to China, just not enough flights out there. So that's good for airlines if we get uh, more routes to China going again. And then number two, we'd love to see if they announce a deal for some Boeing Max airplanes. And we see some economic things coming out of the summit beyond just um, what they're going to talk about with AI. I'm not really hopeful we're going to roll back any of the, the NVIDIA chip uh, bans or anything like that. I think that, that we're going to be very, very hesitant on AI technology. Obviously, China would love us to do that and have a little yeah. bit more trade, but I don't see that happening. So I'm just tempering expectations that we're going to get a big update and a big increase on, on tech trade to China. Would you invest directly in China-related or China-owned companies, whether it's on the mainland through the Shanghai, which you'd have to go through a, a third party, or the Hang Seng Index, Victoria? Sure. I mean, I mean, Bob is probably the biggest one out there. You know, right now they're looking at kind of breaking that company up and they're coming little multi-smaller companies. But Bob is a, a behemoth out there. I think you have to be a little bit careful what you are investing in, making sure you understand the ADR, the ownership, because the, the Chinese state has come in and they can unilaterally make some uh, unfortunate uh, financial and ownership changes pretty, pretty <coughs> uh, abruptly. So investors do face a little bit more, I, I would say, political risk investing in China. Um, obviously, there's there's areas. Thank around you. it, Will Taiwan do. semiconductors that that uh, took a beating a couple of years ago, Good but it looks you. a little bit more attractive now. 
Okay, we have a voice there. Like they say in the Zoom calls, everybody, if you don't know if you're on mute, mute yourself, just in case. I mean, we, how many times have we all heard that? Or right, we've got DeWardrick McNeil and Jeff Sonnefeld still available as well. Uh, DeWardrick, uh, back to you. Obviously, the military side is probably paramount with Taiwan and everything else. But uh, Victoria and Eamon listed a lot of other things. You talked about them just a bit. How high would AI rank on that? Well, I think it's important that, you know, Eamon pointed out the U.S. feels like they're in the lead here. So perhaps uh, having a dialogue that is about AI would only really uh, benefit China, maybe the thinking. Look, I think there has to be some rules of the road set up here the same way I believe that about nuclear and cyber and space. So I would like to see some sort of dialogue around AI, but I understand why the administration may think this could advantage China if we if we go deeper uh, at the moment. But, you know, I think we have to really address uh, what the rules of the road are for all countries, but particularly the two power uh, the two powers yeah. globally. Uh, and and Jeff, you had referenced energy and oil, obviously. I think maybe the other bear, uh, Russian bear in the room, is Vladimir Putin because China and Russia have gotten very close. China continues to buy a bunch of Russian oil, Iranian oil as well. They're going to they're gonna buy what they can. They're helping to fund Russia's coffers as well. And I've got to imagine that this growing sort of Russia, China, Iran, and even to a lesser extent, India alliance has got to be concerning. Yeah, and it's uh, a lot of the, the the growth of the shadow fleet that you predicted a year ago that I have to admit you were right, Brian. Russia did ramp up on to circumvent uh, the price caps that the EU had for up and through September very effectively put on Russia. Now, uh, China has, uh, you know, has given a lot of tankers to Russia to circumvent that. Those tankers are pretty much environmentally unsound. Uh, the Greeks have, have, so, have shown, sold some, too. And what we're seeing now is the Europeans are starting to enforce some sanctions against those leaky Chinese ships that Russia has, has purchased. But on that, that front, that's troubling. I do kick myself when you asked me on my wish list what I would have added uh, to Eamon's list, and Eamon nailed it really well in terms of what President Biden uh, should focus on, which was he came up with intellectual property. The only thing I would add to that, going down that stream that ties into the AI issues, because there only are um, two or three companies that depend on as much as 50% of their revenues from China. Surprisingly, it's uh, still uh, uh, Qualcomm and uh, TI and Marathon Technologies, but of the Fortune 500 companies, 90% of them don't even rely on China for as much as 10% of their revenues. That's that's astounding. But the number of tech companies do. Uh, and that's a concern. Well, there was a major concern is the securities law that, you know. You're, you're, an, Jeff, you're bringing up an interesting point. A lot of people, I think, do not realize this. The trade flows are primarily one way. The United States does not sell a lot of things to China. We sell Teslas in China. GM sells a lot of Buicks. In China, Boeing would like to sell a lot of airplanes to China, although China just rolled out its own passenger jet, which looks shockingly like the Boeing 737. <laughs> we do not sell that much to China. I think it's about the same as the, the annual output of Delaware or something like that. 
Well, and you, we can find companies that are, are now uh, moving their sourcing from China because you're right, that's where the imbalance has been. A lot more of the production has come from China than for us selling into China's markets. Uh, but you see, as we mentioned just a few moments ago, how Apple has been moving as much as 25%. That They were 90% dependent on China production before. That's a major move into Vietnam and other parts of Asia and elsewhere. But even Taiwan Semiconductor has made a, a commitment to a massive $100 billion investments here in the U.S. I visited some recently in Arizona, and they're really coming along. It's quite impressive. And some other companies in other spaces. Of course, apparel has been cutting back dramatically. It had been 40%. Of of their uh, of their uh, focus had been on on China. Now we're seeing apparel is coming out dramatically, but we're seeing some uh, toy companies like uh, I don't know Hasbro has cut half their production from there. So those are some major moves, and we're seeing is is that the uh, as a trading partner going both ways on this as a trading partner, China has fallen from the U.S.'s largest trading partner to now the third largest. Mexico uh, and Canada mm -hmm. are considerably ahead of China, and that's a major move in the last year. Yeah, DeWardwick, if you were in the room or if you were advising President Biden, what would, how would you advise him to deal with Xi Jinping and his team? Because if you don't know a lot about Xi Jinping, I urge everybody to kind of go back and, and read his life story, which was filled with brutality and poverty. At one point, he was living in a cave because his father had been arrested. He came out. He rose back through the ranks. I mean, this is not a guy um, who plays nice. Yeah, that is absolutely uh, true in terms of his, his history. He had a rough time during the Cultural Revolution, Brian. Look, I think the president and his team have done a really good job here. You know, Biden speaks about how well he knows she in terms of leader-to-leader -leader engagement. Look, I think the optics here, the stagecraft that we saw, you know, choosing the, the Fiololi estate is very reminiscent of the way the Obama administration handled Xi during Sunnyvale. So playing to the ego, but also being tough. And you hear the Biden administration consistently say, we are going to compete. That is where we are. We will try and find ways to cooperate when it's in our interest to do so. But competition is where we are. I think that tough line message, that direct message is important. What worries me, though, Brian, is that if you listen to what Xi Jinping said, he has not accepted that. He says that competition between major powers is not the prevailing trend. Part of this meeting was supposed to be to get this cooperation competition framework sort of acknowledged by both sides. Mm -hmm. China is doing it privately, for sure, but publicly they're very hesitant to talk about the competition piece. We should not be lulled into thinking there isn't a competition, and we should be continuing to push the framework that the Biden administration is pushing, competition without veering into conflict, uh, but also some cooperation. And Victoria Green, I still believe, is here. And Victoria, listen, there's a lot. You know, the, 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 the president and the administration is investing a lot of money through the Inflation Reduction Act. A lot of that hasn't been written yet, but at some point, a lot of that money will go through to build out things here in the United States. And I hate to say this, but the reality is that we are so reliant on China, to Jeff's point, all the ingredients in so many of our pharmaceuticals, many of the minerals and ingredients that go into things like EV battery technology as well. I don't see how an investor who wanted to be conscious of China's terrible human rights record would be able to avoid investing in anything that probably has not been touched, built, or shipped by China. 
Uh, yeah, that gets pretty hard. You know, if you look at the supply chains over the last 20 years or so, 30 years, right? Globalization was the answer to everything. And we saw this massive expansion in supplies, pains all f far flung. It takes decades to bring that back. We are absolutely onshoring. We're investing in our infrastructure. But if you look at, you know, rare earth minerals, critical parts for technology, pharmaceuticals, you know, compounding on chemicals, a lot of that definitely still comes from China and Russia. And it's very hard for us to reproduce that here. I know everybody's desperately looking for new sources of lithium. There, there's some hope on U.S. lithium mines. But again, the lag time and process of getting that up is very difficult. So as we're building out all this new EV infrastructure, all these new battery plants, all these new charging stations, it is reliant a lot on, on Chinese technology. And it's going to be very hard. I think you would be very yeah. hard pressed to say, I have a piece of, of anything, a piece of furniture, a pen, a pencil that hasn't been touched in China. Yeah. Okay. Just by the way, I want to pause because our viewers, it's 8.05 here, 5.05 on the West Coast. I'm a lot of people say, well, Brian, we love your show. It normally ends at 8 p.m. Well, <laughs> we are live, and there's a reason we are live, and that is because the president is expected to hold a press conference. Um, we are waiting on the president. Obviously, he's got a full agenda today. There is a lot going on. Those flags, they've been waiting patiently as well. And so when the president does come out, we are expecting him to hopefully take questions from the media. The president has not had a press conference where he took questions from the media since I believe September 11th when he was in Vietnam. He took a couple of questions on Air Force One. That ended abruptly. The Vietnam press conference uh, ended sort of mid-sentence, uh, if you remember that correctly. Either way, I know members of the media are champing at the bit to hopefully be able to ask the president a question on live national TV. It has been a couple of months since we have. So when that happens, we will take you to it. We are live here on last call, and just to kind of recap what happened today, President Biden and President Xi had a meeting with, of course, many of their senior staff members. They had a lunch as well. They took a short walk in the garden, and the meeting was took place in Woodside, California, sort of near Palo Alto, Stanford area, about 45 minutes to an hour south. The meeting did not take place in San Francisco proper, like the APEC summit as well. So you can see a lot of milling around Members of the media seated. We saw John Kirby, White House spokesman, walk through there uh, just one moment ago. Uh, very quickly, guys, I'd ask everybody to kind of keep their answers short, although we could be sitting here for another hour. Who knows? Uh, Jeff, uh, if you were a member of the media and you got to ask the question, a president a question right now, what would it be? Uh, well, first, I would say I resent that. Uh, keep your question short. You came to me right away. I knew you were targeting me. Uh, but who knows? It's how equal, much no, it's equal to DeWardrick and Victoria as well, because my producer will kill me if not. Well, it is that uh, we began the show earlier, much earlier on with my, my friend and co-author Kyle Bass, and he was admonishing uh, the administration to to argue from a position of strength. And I would respond and ask, are we? Uh, are you are we to, uh, negotiating a position of strength and ask the administration that because I believe we are and I'm not sure if Kyle follows that exactly is we're taking a look at real estate investments as you know that are down by 30 percent and that was 30 percent of, of China's GDP uh, up up until the past year we're looking at the first time in a quarter of a century that we actually have outflows of, of foreign direct investments fallen by 20 percent it's been 25 years since we've seen that that happened. We have unemployment soaring at above 20, 21, 22 percent in the in the prime years of the 18 to 34 years. Uh, and we have seen that every major stock market in China is down by a, uh, by a third. Mm -hmm. The GDP is down by two thirds uh, from where it was say, in 2010 when we were so intimidated from, you know, 10 percent growth yeah. to is that we are in a position of strength. And I think that's 
pretty remarkable. So what more could we ask for, given that we are in the economic driver's seat and, and they're not? DeWardwick, if you were a member of the media sitting in that audience and you had the chance to, to ask the president a question, because we, let's be honest, we, we do not get that opportunity uh, with President Biden that often, what would it be? Yeah, briefly, Brian, I would say, sir, there are many people who believe that China's on the back foot economically. And if they're a competitor, if they're an adversary, should we not press advantage here? Are we letting them off the hook uh, with this meeting? And will your Republican uh, counterparts in Washington uh, hit you hard for doing this? That would be my my question. Victoria, what about from the investor side? (laughs) You have an investment specific question you would ask of the uh, president of the United States? I would ask him, how are the American people and the American companies going to gain from some of these deals? Uh, What is the benefit to us? Not to sound selfish, but at the end of the day, that's what we're out here for, right? We'd like to make our corporations more money. So can we get, as we're talking about a little bit, potentially the upper hand, what what, what are we actually going to get? This is all well and good. The stopping fentanyl, 100% would be fantastic for Americans. But I'd like some economic concessions somehow from China. Like what? I'd like something. Uh, I mean, obviously, intellectual property would be great. I I don't necessarily see that happening, but like the Boeing deal, uh, more trade and tourism, things like that, uh, where they, and then potentially- But it's been a disaster intellectual. I think you you probably got my little wink and a nudge there, Victoria, when I said that the new China jet looks a lot like the Boeing 737. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm shocked. You know, there are cars like the Land Wind that look a lot like the Land Rover. I mean, you know, at one point, yeah. I think Bill Gates, and I'm probably misquoting him, said that 95 percent of Windows installations, you know, a long time ago were, were pirated. I mean, this has been an yeah. ongoing problem, which, you know, China kind of says and hints that they're going to fix, but does not. They don't, and they because they like us to continue to have a foreign investment. They want us to put more factories there so they can steal our intellectual property because it's very hard to stop once it's set up in China. It's, I think it's extremely difficult to protect property once you have a factory there or you're set up there and you're manufacturing there. It's very difficult for us to protect trade secrets, and we've seen time and time again that that hasn't been the case. You know, on the one hand, we have been talking a lot about what China hasn't been doing for us. I do want to point out they do do a lot of trade and tourism for us. If you look at Las Vegas Sands or the casino. There, I just kind of—I'm not trying to plug China. I'm not a huge China bull, but there is a good connect on the services side. Maybe not on the goods side; they're not buying our goods. But there is a lot of on the tourists and the services side that China does provide to American businesses. You can look at casinos and gambling. You can look at tourism and visits to the United States. You can look at education uh, and, and a lot of the Chinese students that are studying yeah. here, paying full freight. You know, they do provide more on the services side, less so on the goods and trade and physical, absolutely. But I do think that's one thing we didn't necessarily talk about is that we do benefit as a company from our good relationship with China and warming relationships. More flights back and forth between Beijing would be phenomenal, potentially for tourism coming here as well as us visiting there. Yeah, and obviously, Jeff Sonnenfeld, you're at, you're at Yale University. And there are many, many students who have come from China, and I would imagine they are not, they are not getting a scholarship. They are paying full tuition, which my guess is uh, you're... you're, you're, uh, you're Beloved benefactors in New Haven would would greatly appreciate. I mean, there is a tie there culturally, educationally. We just need to bridge some of the other gaps. Since you you bring up Yale in China, I'm going to tell you something that you won't hear on any other network and anywhere else. And I'll be in big trouble for saying it goes off the record. Just moments ago, we just ended 
a conference that I held here that was off the record. It's the first meeting of a senior Arab official and a senior Israeli official. Just between we friends, it was the ambassador from United Arab Emirates to the United States and the ambassador from Israel to the United States. I'm not so sure their governments were excited about it. Jared Kushner also joined us and Dennis Ross from, from, from rival administrations. And a Chinese student asked what you're asking, what could China help to do right now? And everybody agreed, not to take us backwards in the discussion, but it was on the oil front is what China could do on that front. The only other thing that I would add to the discussion now, and forget what I just said, because that was supposed to have been off the record. The only other thing <laughs> is, on the, is the security law that we that has been referred to briefly before is uh, that, uh, you know, the old adage that what, you know, what happens in Los Angeles or Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas. China has extended that dramatically. It's it's clearly got to be a violation of general agreement of tariffs and tr tariff and trade is a GATT violation. The way they are enforcing this, all data created yeah. here stays here. Five years ago, they tried that. People complained. They've tightened that. So and guess what? That means it's got to be it's got to be produced on Huawei equipment and, and managed by Huawei software. Uh, that and and the, many of the companies that are having dinner tonight are uh, agreeing to those terms, and that's that's very troubling. Uh, there were some other countries that tried that years ago in the credit card business. I'm old enough to remember about about 30 years ago, some of the some European countries were trying to interfere with the free flow of of data, and GATT stopped that, saying you can't have credit credit cards functioning if if the data created here has to reside in that country. That that's absurd. Yeah. Uh, but they're getting away with that, and that has to be addressed. Well, it's and by the way, it looks like we are getting closer finally. It's, uh, I think, about an hour behind what we were sort of semi-told. But uh, either way, DeWarwick, um, you know, we, we, we don't like Huawei, but we sure love TikTok. And with what we're seeing going on in the Middle East and great work to Jeff and his, his whole team trying to bridge gaps and, and, and have dialogue behind the scenes there off the record, of course, DeWarwick, oh, yeah, you know, we, we allowed TikTok to exist when we have no idea the kind of damage it may or may not or may not be doing to Amer Americans, particularly American youth, when they can just they can push anything they want on their algorithms, no matter what the content is. Yeah, you know, Brian, this has been one of those issues that has really gotten Washington in some quarters up in arms. But what we have is a lot of concern, a lot of rhetoric about concern, but a not, not a lot of serious policy actions uh, to ban uh, TikTok. I suspect as we move into an election year, you'll start to hear more uh, people talk about this again. But really where the rubber meets the road is getting something done about this, either in Congress or the administration. And at the moment, uh, it's more rhetoric than it is policy. But I think there's a lot of concerns for TikTok on the security side. But to your point, Brian, a lot of concerns about TikTok and its social impact. But I think given both of those things, we should have seen by now yeah. more serious policy action than we've See, seen. Because, because with what's going on in Gaza and the Israel-Hamas war, you're seeing instances where people are just posting information that is being seen by millions of people and nobody knows if it's true. And then somebody posts something and they say, this is a video of that. And then others say it's doctored. I just feel like our, our lack of ability to filter out exactly what is truly occurring is at risk here. And TikTok, and there's a lot of people who love it. I get it. Um, TikTok may be the greatest purveyor because we don't know who's actually controlling the information to Warburg. Yeah. And, you know, they've been very guarded about that algorithm and how that algorithm feeds. Uh, we don't have a lot of insight uh, with respect to TikTok. 
you know, it is a concern. Social media in general is a concern. But the disinformation campaigns that you can run effectively on TikTok, in addition to some of the other security concerns, I think is something that I, I think as we move into this election year, we'll start to come back around in a lot of thoughts and comments. You hear Nikki Haley talking about this a lot. She got wrapped around the knuckles uh, by one of her Republican uh, candidate colleagues about her daughter being on TikTok. But TikTok is a serious concern, but no serious policy action in Washington. Well, thus far, I think she, she did a pretty good job of wrapping back as well. Uh, <laughs> that, that started to look a little bit like like Congress. And folks, just just once again, uh, this is what they call in live television stalling. Uh, we are waiting for the president, President Biden, to have a press conference in Woodside, California, where earlier today he met and had a summit with President Xi Jinping of China, as well as top aides and advisors. They're about 45 minutes south of San Francisco at sort of an estate that you can rent out. Um, as somebody noted earlier, it was one time seen in the, in the 1980s primetime show Dynasty. I, either way, it seems appropriate. Um, we are waiting on the president, and I know a very eager media has been advised, or at least hinted at, that the president will take questions from members of the media. So again, we are waiting on all of this to happen, and uh, hopefully it will soon. We've got another voice to add into this conversation. That is Fred Kemp of the Atlantic Council. And Fred, as I've said to my other esteemed guests here, I may have to cut you off. Apologies. What would you hope the president will say tonight? What would you like to have seen be accomplished today? Well, I, I, I hope you will be able to cut me off for President Biden saying something positive. So these two leaders came in wanting to reduce tensions. They came in uh, wanting to stabilize the relationship, build a floor under the relationship, but for very different reasons. Uh, one of them is President Biden. He wants he has two wars. He has one in the Middle East, one in 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 Europe, and he has to reduce tensions and reduce the chance of miscalculation with China. With China, it's all economic. It's the economy, stupid. Uh, China has 20 percent youth unemployment. Its economy is slowing. Foreign direct investment is falling off the charts. Uh, it, its approach of uh, strict party control, uh, 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 cracking down on the private sector and belligerence toward the Europe and the United States it has backfired. And and this charm offensive, if, if you can call it that, and certainly in, in the public media in China, they're sending a message that they're trying to repair things, is aimed entirely at, at, uh, at, 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 at the economy. So we're thinking about political military, uh, President Biden is. Uh, the Chinese leader is thinking about yeah. taking care of his economy. But if that brings them to positive conclusions, to reduce tensions and to build stability, that's a good thing. You know, if I go to the Global Times newspaper, which is a Chinese state-run media, all media in China is really state-run, uh, Fred, right now, you can go to globaltimes.ca. I'm not encouraging people to go there, but I just went to look because I want to know what they were saying. The picture is of Xi Jinping shaking hands with Gavin Newsom. Huh. Well. And Gavin Newsom guess... was in Beijing two weeks ago. It just, I, I find, I don't think the Ch Chinese media does not do anything by accident. I've been to China a couple of times, and it's just an interesting visual there on the front page of one of the most read sort of English language China publications. Well, it could be Gavin Newsom. It could be Elon Musk. Uh, this is the CEO who's embracing Xi Jinping. Uh, I think they're trying to send a message. Uh, I think that, they are. Uh, it's, it, honestly, it's disrespectful. 
Uh, that's so that's so interesting that you say so. Let, let's see what the president says. It's interesting. There is going to be no joint statement. You have no joint press conference. This is a very different mood than than President Trump and President Xi together. Uh, uh, you know, they've met for a long time. We're going to be looking for a couple of things. Will we restart military to military uh, uh, relationship, which broke Fred, off? Fred, we got to go. The uh, the president of the thank you, Fred Kemp. Apologies. President Biden is stepping town. out to the podium for a. Uh, As you know, I just concluded several hours of meetings with President Xi, and I believe they were some of the most constructive and productive discussions we've had. I've been meeting with President Xi since both of us were vice president over 10 years ago. Our meetings have always been candid and straightforward. We haven't always agreed, but they've been straightforward. And today, build on the groundwork related with the past several months of high-level diplomacy between our teams. We've made some important progress, I believe. First, I'm pleased to announce that after many years of being on hold, we are restarting cooperation between the United States and PRC on counter-narcotics. In 2019, you may remember, China took action to greatly reduce the amount of fentanyl shipped directly from China to the United States. But in the years since that time, The challenge has evolved from finished fentanyl to fentanyl chemical ingredients and and pill presses, which are being shipped without control. And by the way, some of these pills are being inserted in other drugs like cocaine. A lot of people are dying. More people in the United States between the ages of 18 to 49 die from fentanyl than from guns, car accidents, or any other cause, period. So today, with this new understanding, We're taking action to significantly reduce the flow of precursor chemicals and pill presses from China to the Western Hemisphere. It's going to save lives, and I appreciate President Xi's commitment on this issue. President Xi and I tasked our teams to maintain a policy and law enforcement coordination going forward to make sure it works. I also want to thank the bipartisan congressional delegation to China, led by Leader Schumer, in October for supporting efforts, uh, this effort so strongly. Secondly, and this is critically important, we're reassuming military-to-military contacts, direct contacts. As a lot of you press know, follow this, that's been cut off, and it's been very worrisome. That's how accidents happen, misunderstandings. So we're back to direct, open, clear, direct communications on a, on a, ba- on a direct basis. Vital miscalculations on either side can uh, can cause real real trouble with a with a uh, a country like China or any other major country, and so I think we're made real progress there as well. And thirdly, we're going to get our experts together to discuss risk and safety issues associated with artificial intelligence. As many of you who travel with me around the world, almost everywhere I go, every major leader wants to talk about the impact of artificial intelligence. These are tangible steps in the right direction to determine what's useful and what's not useful, what's dangerous and what's acceptable. Moreover, there are evidence of cases that that I've made all along. The United States will continue to compete vigorously with the PRC, but will manage that competition responsibly so it doesn't veer into conflict or accidental conflict. And where it's possible, where our interests are, coincide, we're going to work together like we did on fentanyl. That's what the world expects of us. The rest of the world expects, not just in people in China and the United States, but the rest of the world expects that of us. And that's what the United States is going to be doing. 
Today, President Xi and I also exchanged views on a range of regional and global issues, including Russia's refusal and brutal war to stop the war and brutal war of aggression against Ukraine and, and conflict in Gaza. And as I always do, I raised areas where the United States has concerns about the PRC's actions, including detained and, ex and, uh, and, and exit banned U.S. citizens, human rights and corrective uh, coercive activities in the South China Sea. We discussed all three of those things. I gave them names of individuals that we think are being held, and hopefully we can get them released as well. No agreement on that. No agreement on that. I also stressed the importance of peace and stability in the Taiwan Straits. It's clear that we object to, Beijing, to Beijing's non-market economic practices and disadvantage that, that disadvantage American businesses and workers, and that we'll continue to address them. And I named what I thought a number of those were. I welcome the positive steps we've taken today. And it's important for the world to see that we're implementing the approach in the best traditions of American diplomacy. We're talking to our competitors. And the key, uh, and, and just just talking, just made blunt with one another, so there's no misunderstanding, as a key element to maintaining global stability and delivering for the American people. And in the months ahead, we're going to continue to preserve and pursue high-level diplomacy at the PRC in both directions to keep the lines of communication open, including between President Xi and me. He and I agreed that each one of us could pick up the phone, call directly, and we'd be heard immediately. And that's uh, now I'd like to be able to take some questions, if I may. And I'm told that Dimitri of the Financial Times has the first question. Uh, thank you. And as an Irishman, I apologize for bringing the rain. Well, holy God, I wouldn't have called on you if I'd known that. No, I'm teasing. Go ahead. Fire away, Dimitri. President Biden, given that America is playing a key role in two major global crises in Ukraine and in Gaza, does that alter your previous commitment to defend Taiwan from any Chinese military action? And did Xi Jinping outline the conditions under which China would attack Taiwan? Look, I reiterated what I've said since I've become president and what every previous president of late has said, that uh, we, uh, we maintain the agreement that there is a one-China policy and that uh, I'm not going to uh, change that. That's not going to change. And so uh, that's about the extent to which we discussed it. Uh, next question, sorry, was Bloomberg. It appears among other issues that your agreement with uh, President Xi over fentanyl would require, will require a lot of trust and verification to ensure success curbing those drug flows. I'm wondering, after today and considering all that you've been through in the past year, would you say, Mr. President, that you trust President Xi? And secondly, if I could, on Taiwan, uh, you've, you and your administration officials have warned President Xi in China about interference in the upcoming elections. I'm wondering what would the consequences be if they do, in fact, interfere in the election? Well, I, may, I had that discussion with them, too, made it clear I didn't expect any interference, any at all. And we had that discussion as, as he was leaving. Look. Do I trust you? I trust but verify, as that old saying goes. That's where I am. And, uh, you know, uh, we're in a competitive relationship, China and the United States. But uh, my responsibility is to, uh, to make, it, uh, make this rational and manageable so it, uh, so it doesn't result in conflict. 
That's what I'm all about. That's what this is about. To find a place where we uh, can come together and uh, where we find mutual interests that, uh, but most importantly, from my perspective, that are interested in the American people. That's what this is about. And that's exactly what we'll do. Uh, uh, you know, uh, we're in a situation where we agreed that uh, fentanyl and its, precur its precursors will be curbed substantially and the pill presses. That's a big, that's a big movement. They're doing, uh, and by the way, uh, you know, I won't, I guess I shouldn't identify where it occurred, but John, I know uh, two people near where I live. Their kids literally, as I said, uh, strange, they woke up dead. Someone had inserted in, whether the young man did or not, inserted in a, a drug he was taking, fentanyl. Again, I, I don't, I hope you don't have any experience with knowing anyone, but this is the largest killer, people in that age category. And, uh, you know, uh, I guess the other thing I think is most important is that uh, since I've, I've spent more time with President Xi than any world leader has, just because we were vice presidents, uh, his president, uh, was President Hu, I'm not making a joke, President Hu and, uh, and President Obama thought we should get to know one another. Wasn't appropriate for the president of the United States to be walking, dealing with the vice president. So we met, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was 68 hours of just face-to-face, -face, just us and a simultaneous interpreter. So I, I think I, I know the man, I know his modus operandi, he's been uh, we have disagreements. He has a different view than I have on a lot of things, but he's been straight. I don't mean that it's good, bad, or indifferent. He's just been straight. And uh, so, uh, you know, uh, we, as I said, the thing that I, I find most assuring is he raised, and I fully agree, that either one of us have any concern, Mr. Ambassador, any concern about anything between our nations or happening in our region. We should pick up the phone and call one another, and we'll take the call. That's an important progress. Uh, I am embarrassed. I think it's CBS, but I can't remember who is CBS. I'm sorry. Uh, Mr. President, good day. <laughs> sorry. I apologize. Uh, can you stress the competition with China does not fear into conflict or competition? In the past years, there 180 incidents of Chinese aggression against U.S. aircraft in the Pacific, and of course, ramped up military activity in the South China. If that does not count, then what does? And issue warnings against that. Well, first of all, none of it did end up in a conflict, number one. Number two, uh, you may recall I did a few little things like get the quad together, allow Australia to have access to new submarines, moving in the direction of work with the Philippines. So uh, our actions speak louder than our words. He fully understands. And out, must that is there. 
This week, we also said that we must protect hospitals. So when you weigh the target against the number of civilians by the hospital, is the operation way just? Well, look, we did discuss uh, this, by the way. Um, but we can't let it get out of control. Here's the situation. You have a circumstance where the first war crime is being committed by Hamas by having their headquarters, their military, hidden under a hospital. And that's a fact. That's what's happened. Israel did not go in with large number of troops, did not raid, did not rush everything down. They've gone in, and they've gone in with their soldiers carrying weapons or guns. They were uh, told, uh, told, let me be precise. We've discussed the need for them to be incredibly careful. You have a circumstance where you know there is a fair number of Hamas terrorists. Hamas has already said publicly that they plan on attacking Israel again, like they did before. They're even cutting babies' heads off to burning, burning women and children alive. And so the idea that they're going to just stop and not do anything is not realistic. This is not the carpet bombing. This is a different thing. They're going through these tunnels. They're going in the hospital. And if you notice, I, I was mildly preoccupied today. I apologize. I didn't see everything. But what I did see, whether I haven't had it confirmed yet, I am asked my team to answer the question. But what happened is they're also bringing in incubators. They're bringing in other, uh, other means to help the people in the hospital. And they've given the doctors and, I'm told, the doctors and nurses and the personnel an opportunity to get out of harm's way. So this is a different story than I believe what was occurring before with indiscriminate bombing. Uh, what do you got? Washington Post. I think that's right. Thank you. Mr. President. Oh, there you are. Sorry, I couldn't see in the light. Uh, Mr. President, Israel's war in Gaza more than 11,000 Palestinians just for a month. And I'm created sorry, you're breaking up. I didn't. We did, we did. Israel's war in Gaza has killed more than 11,000 Palestinians just over a month and created a humanitarian disaster. Israeli officials have said this war could months or even years. Have you communicated to Prime Minister Netanyahu any sort of deadline or time frame for how long you are willing to support Israel in this operation? Are you comfortable with the operation going on indefinitely? And is there any deal underway to free hostages? Thank you. Yes, no working backwards forward. Look, I have uh, been deeply involved in moving on the uh, hostage negotiation. Um, and uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself here because I don't know what's happened in the last four hours. But uh, I have uh, we've gotten great uh, cooperation from the Qataris. Uh, I've spoken with them as well a number of times. I think the pause and that is really that the Israelis have agreed to it down to well, I'm getting too much detail. I, I know Mr. Secretary, I'm gonna stop. The uh, but I am I am mildly hopeful. I'm mildly hopeful. Um, with regard to uh, when is this gonna stop? 
I think it's going to stop when the uh, when Hamas no longer maintains the capacity to murder and abuse and and uh, and just do horrific things to uh, the Israelis. And they're in and they still think that at least as of this morning, they still thought they could. I, uh, I, I guess the best way for me to say it is that uh, I take a look. Uh, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, acknowledges they have an obligation to use uh, as much caution as they can in going after their targets. It's not like they're rushing in the hospital, knocking down doors and, you know, pulling people aside and shooting people indiscriminately. Um, but uh, Hamas, as I said, said they plan on attacking Israelis again. And uh, this is a, a terrible dilemma. Uh, so what do you do? I think that uh, Israel is also taking risks themselves about their folks being killed and one-to-one -one going through these hospital rooms, uh, hospital halls. But one thing has been established is that Hamas does have headquarters, weapons, materiel below this hospital, and I suspect others. But how long it's going to last, I don't know. Look, I made it clear to the Israelis that um, to Bibi and to his war cabinet, that I think the only ultimate answer here is a two-state solution that's real. we got to get to the point where there is an ability to be able to even talk without worrying about whether or not we're just dealing with, uh, they're dealing with Hamas that's going to engage in the same activities they did over the past, uh, on, on the 7th. So it, it's, uh, but I can't tell, I'm not a fortune teller, I can't tell you how long it's going to last. But I can tell you, I don't think it ultimately ends until there's a two-state solution. I made it clear to the Israelis, I think it's a big mistake to, for them to think they're going to occupy Gaza and maintain Gaza. I don't think that works. And so we're going to, I think you're going to see efforts to uh, bring along, well, I shouldn't go in anymore because that's been things I've been negotiating with Arab countries and others about what the next steps are. But uh, anyway. Thank you all very much. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. This ends the press conference. When Hamas said they plan on doing the same thing again with what they did, what they did on the 7th. They're going to go in. They want to slaughter Israelis. They want to do it again. They've said it out loud. They're not kidding about it. They're not backing off. And so I just uh, asked a rhetorical question. I wonder what we would do if that were the case. On the hostages, though, you said we're coming for you. What do you mean to the American hostages when you said, hey, oh. we're coming for you? What I meant was I'm doing everything in my power to get you out, coming to help you, to get you out. I don't mean sending military in to get them. Is, is, is that what you thought I might mean? I, no, no, no. It, it, I was not talking about the military. I was talking about we, you're on our mind every single day, five, six times a day. I'm working on how I can be helpful in getting the hostages released and have a period of time where there's a pause long enough to let that happen. And there are somewhere between 50 and 100 hostages there. 
uh, we think. And sir, what is a three-year-old American child? You're darn right it is. That's why I'm not going to stop till we get her. No, I can't tell you. I won't tell you. Do you feel absolutely confident based on what you know that yes. that is the truth? Yes. And Mr. President, after today, would you still refer to President Xi as a dictator? This is a term uh, that you used earlier this year. Well, look, he is. I mean, he's a dictator in the sense that he, he is a guy who runs a country that is a communist country that is based on a form of government totally different than ours. Anyway, we know All right, the president there wrapping up his uh, press conference, the first press conference since September 11th when he was in Vietnam, took a couple of questions from the media, a lot of ranging topics there. He talked about Israel and Gaza, said that Hamas's headquarters was under a hospital. Biden called that a, quote, fact and noted that Hamas has said it would attack Israel again, but he does believe in a two-state solution. He actually started and led talking about fentanyl and trying to eliminate some of the importation of their precursor chemicals. He talked about military-to-military contact to avoid what he calls accidents and stressed the peace and stability in the Taiwan Straits. All right, we've got our panel here. We've got Fred Kemp and we've got DeWardrick McNeil. Uh, gentlemen, thank you for being patient. Uh, DeWardrick, your takeaway on the president's comments and maybe some of the answers to those questions. Yeah, I thought it was a good press conference, Brian. The one thing that stood out to me was, you know, we talked last night about uh, the Chinese side seeking some reassurance on Taiwan, at least that our policy had not changed. And I thought Biden was very, very tightly scripted on Taiwan. He restated the one uh, China policy. When it, uh, a question about the elections came up, he said, we discussed that. I've made it clear I'm not, I'm not looking for uh, any sort of uh, uh, interference from the Chinese side. So very tightly scripted. That had not always been the case. As you know, he's moved well beyond the talking points on Taiwan in the past. So that stood out. The other thing that caught my attention, Brian, we were talking about this earlier, whether or not there would be some statement about AI. We know now that they did talk about that. And Biden said in his comments, we were looking at risk and safety issues. I translate that to mean on the safety issues, we're talking about safety to all of humanity. On the risk side, we're talking about weaponization of this technology and how you use it in a military battlefield comp, uh, uh, situation. And it seems like we're going to get some sort of dialogue in the future around AI. So those are two things I took away as sort of big, big deals for me. But I thought he did a good job overall in the press conference. Hey Fred, one of the questions was, and, and he called on you know a couple of folks, and I think they knew they were going to be called on. One of the questions was, uh, do the twin wars, I think this was the first question for the FT, do the twin wars, meaning Russia, Ukraine, Israel, Hamas, impact our ability, the U.S., to handle China militarily? What did you think of that and his answer? Well, I, I, I don't think the answer was clear. Um, uh, look, uh, I think the big win here is you have the leader of the two most important states that can bring the world to a great deal of disaster talking to each other. And Biden saying very clearly that they said they're going to talk to each other and sort things out. Uh, the U.S. came in wanting to get some big agreement 
on AI and nuclear weapons. We don't really know whether they got that. There's some hints that they're going in that direction. But if the U.S. and the, and China together decide that on nuclear weapons uh, they're not they're going to ban or at least uh, uh, limit the use of artificial intelligence to. Uh, inadvertently started an unwanted war. That would be a good thing. Let's yeah. see how things come out. I really want to watch to see what President Xi's readout is from this. Be fentanyl for the President Biden was important for domestic politics. Uh, the military military relations was the most important thing that Jake Sullivan, his national security advisor, said he wanted to come away with from geopolitics. AI yeah. is looking at the future. These are all good. The question is, what do we build on from now? But 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 Fred, it's very clear that the uh, the relationship still tense. We're, we're going to leave it there, Fred and DeWardrick. Uh, really appreciate your insight. Thank you. By the way, a new Quinnipiac poll today said that only 26 percent of those surveyed Americans said that the border was handled being handled appropriately. Perhaps that is why the president led with fentanyl there. So a press conference, the first in a couple of months, but good to see. All right, folks, the market has been red hot. Futures, they are not. They're slightly in the red, but it is very early. I'm sure we're going to have much more of this on CNBC Live, 5 a.m. tomorrow, Worldwide Exchange. We'll see you tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.